when you look at the percentage of non-white voters uh, and you sort of compare that to the margins of victory for each of these candidates, you really see a problem. The closer each precinct gets to 50% or more non-white voters. This is Under the Dome. On today's episode, we'll take a closer look at the most detailed data released yet from the 2020 election. For the News and Observer, I'm Lucille Sherman, your host for this episode of Under the Dome. It's Friday, February 12th. Here with me today is my colleague, investigative reporter Tyler Dukes, who the News and Observer recently stole from WRAL. Thanks for joining me, Tyler. <laughs> um, Good to be here. <laughs> Tyler and I teamed up to work on an analysis of North Carolina's State Board of Elections precinct data for the 2020 election, which came out really recently. And it's been a lot of work. Um, but I'd say we found some interesting things. Tyler, I was wondering if you could tell me what the latest data tells us about the 2020 election in your mind? Yeah, I mean, there are a couple things. And and I, I think what's important about this data is that you can slice and dice it in so many different ways. And it's really like sort of reading tea leaves, right? I mean, you can, you can suss out lots of different trends. And one of the things that is sort of overall pretty interesting with this data is that certainly appeared that Democrats in terms of the presidential election did gain ground, but it just was not enough to overcome the Republican support for Donald Trump in this state, at least in 2020. Yeah, I think it's so interesting that there are a couple of swing states that that flipped and their elections were contested. And we are very swingy. Some people call us the swingiest of states, and we didn't really have it was very clearly went for Donald Trump. So I think that's important to note um, and shows, yeah, definitely the strength either of the Republican Party here or of Trump on the ballot in North Carolina. Yeah, I mean, and and we reported this at the time, but you know, Trump's win in North Carolina was decisive. Um, I mean, we, you know, they took some time for uh, news outlets to call the race for Donald Trump, but that was mostly just because of the weirdness of 2020 and the sheer volume of these sort of mail-in ballot votes that were still waiting to come in. So, you know, really there, you know, was no question after election night about whether or not Donald Trump was going to emerge victorious, unlike some of the other races, which were much less clear. Yeah, definitely. I think it's important to say that from what we've heard from election officials, the election went really smoothly and really well in North Carolina, which I know we can't really say every year. Um, But 2020 definitely went well. And what was the biggest surprise to you when you started digging into this precinct data? Anything in particular? Yeah, I think there are a couple things, and there there's sort of a, a interesting analysis we've done here, looking at particularly the movement in the suburbs, uh, and in some of the rural counties and some of the urban counties. And what we seem, what this data seems to show, is that Donald Trump did lose support 
in suburban precincts. And some of that support started going over to Biden. Still has a majority of that vote share in these places, and certainly in the rural counties as well. as In, in those places specifically, he saw his support grow. Um, but we were certainly seeing, at least in 2020, erosion in uh, those suburban precincts. And that was a thing that um, was, was pretty interesting to me. But the other thing is, is that the change wasn't huge. So we also saw a lot of stability, and we sort of broke this down a little bit in our in our piece that we reported. But you know, we we really we didn't really see this massive swing away from what we saw in 2016. But we did see some subtle changes that were sort of important to suss out. Yeah, I'd say on my end, the thing that surprised me the most was ahead of the election, a lot of politicos or political operatives told me split ticket voting is dead. People don't vote for a Republican at the top of the ballot and then Democrats further down the ballot, which disappointed me because I feel like a split ticket voting is really shows discerning voters. <laughs> so it makes me hopeful split ticket voting does. Um, so that disappointed me. But in looking at this, split ticket voting still exists, if only <laughs> just a little bit. We're talking about like 1% margins um, in terms of split ticket voting. And when I looked at the data for some of the legislative races that I covered in the 2020 election, there are some legislative candidates that did really, really well in areas that you wouldn't expect or performed way above the presidential candidate who won their district. Some of those are Senator Danny Britt in Robeson County, performed tremendously. That county went for Trump and had previously gone for Obama, but he's done really well in that county. And there are other, even Democrats, um, Brian Farkas in House District 9 performed just a hair better than Biden, which is really interesting because the Republican candidate in that House race was a doctor and pretty well known in the community. So it really speaks to still the power that candidates have down the ballot, even if only a tiny bit, which I'm holding on to that hope. <laughs> yeah. And, and the power of local politics, you know, all politics being local. I, I think another thing, uh, the split ticket voting uh, is really interesting for a couple of reasons. And we certainly talked about this a lot when we were reporting this out is, you know, it still counts as a split ticket if you show up to vote for Trump and you don't vote down the ballot. Uh, so we certainly saw that in some places, in some in some cases. But I mean, the the reality of politics in North Carolina is that you know there there is a um, you know sort of the paradox of Tar Heel politics, as uh, as was so famously written by one of our former columnists here at the the NNO. I mean, you you have a a state that has uh, elected a Republican president, a Democratic governor. A Republican lieutenant governor, and then you know within that council of state is a mix of Democrats and Republicans. Um, so you know we certainly see that um, there you know neither party holds sort of a, a stranglehold on the entire ballot, and that was true of 2020 as well. Yeah, that's a really good point. My other question for you is sort of a variation of the previous question I asked you, but what was the most important finding to you in looking at this precinct data? 
So one of the things that we did was we took a look at the demographics of the precincts and we, we used registration data for 2016 and 2020 and, and sort of looked at that. And, you know, there's a lot we can't tell from this precinct data, right? Like we're not seeing individual votes, how individual people voted, but precinct level data is effectively neighborhood data in some cases. And so you can really get down to a lot more fine grained uh, conclusions um, than you might otherwise have for, you know, county-level data. But one of the things that is really stark, I think, here, and this isn't a terrible surprise, but it's illustrative, I think, is is the, you know, the problem that Republican candidates, this Republican candidate for president in particular, had with minority voters. When you look at uh, the percentage of non-white voters uh, and you sort of compare that to the margins of victory for each of these candidates, you really see a problem the closer each precinct gets to 50% or more non-white voters. And you really see the support for Trump drop off pretty spectacularly after that, that 50% mark, almost to nothing. Uh, and there are some notable exceptions to that, which I think is also really interesting. Uh, and that is in places like Robson County, where Donald Trump enjoyed uh, really good support from the American Indian community there, the Lumbee tribe. Um, particularly when he came out in support of Lumbee recognition on the federal level. He also came there to campaign specifically. So we saw him resonate with some minority groups specifically, but by and large, those, the support, you know, those groups do not support this president. Um, and the, the picture is very different when you look at Biden's support uh, across these minority groups and also across precincts uh, that are majority white. So you see a lot more of a mixture of those racial groups across that coalition. Here's my question, though. I've heard this narrative that more minority voters voted for Trump than in 2016. And there's some people that say he did better with minority voters in certain precincts. What do you say to that and what conclusions can we draw from, you know, our data? Yeah, so there there is some exit polling sort of on the national level that uh, seems to indicate that. And, you know, exit polling, you know, is is basically the polling that is done effectively outside the polling, you know, the 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 ballot box when people are coming out and being asked, you know, who do they vote for? This precinct data is is not that, right? We're not seeing individual voting patterns. So we can't necessarily say that 30% of the uh, black voting population in a given precinct voted one way or another, because remember, there is, there is secrecy with this ballot. So precinct data, though, can tell us a little bit more about how that entire block of voters voted. And if we sort of compare that to, you know, just the, the demographic makeup of that particular precinct, we can start to see some patterns. But it is really hard to see, you know, to make a sort of declarative statement just from this data that, you know, minorities, uh, we saw a shift in support from minorities uh, for Trump necessarily, because we can't quite get as fine grained with this data as we could with, for example, exit polling. And one of the things that complicates that there is like, yes, we can say, you know, for a given precinct, maybe it's uh, 50% white, 50% uh, non-white. But it's very hard to look in sort of those subdivisions and see exactly, you know, what the what the turnout was and how each of those subgroups within a precinct 
came out. So uh, it, it's a bit complicated, but you know, one of the things that is always important is to figure out like what can't we know from this data? And that's one of the things that can kind of be difficult to find out. Speaking of things we can't know from this data, I'm wondering what you think it tells us about the 2022 elections. Well, if, if I could be succinct about it, I would say nothing. Right. I mean, I, I think and there are a couple of reasons for that. Like, I, I think we in general uh, are better served as reporters to be in the business of describing and, and not predicting um, because predicting is hard. And I think in a lot of cases, too, 2020 was a really weird year. You have a really uh, strange candidate. Donald Trump, I think everybody could agree, is, is not the normal presidential candidate. Um, in our conversations with uh, political experts, uh, you know, across the spectrum and across the state, one of the things they kept on saying again and again is that, you know, Donald Trump has an effect on voters that is different than other Republican candidates and other Democratic candidates. And the fact that he's not going to be on the ballot in 2022 and may not be on the ballot in 2024 is going to make a big difference. I think the other factor is that we have to remember is is the effect of COVID nineteen and the effect of what you know what that did to our methods of voting and how people turned out. Uh, we saw tremendous turnout, and we also saw tremendous turnout in uh, using methods like mail in ballot voting that we had really never seen in those percentages before. So how that's going to play in twenty twenty two is it's going to depends on depend on you know where we stand in this pandemic, how things are going, uh, and and so I think. You know, there, there are some things that we can take uh, from the 2020 data about sort of the state of play right now. But I think two years is a long time in political terms and four years is even longer. Yeah. And just to add to that, we have our new census data that's coming in this year, which means redistricting is happening in North Carolina at the state level. That data is really late. So redistricting likely won't happen until the fall-ish. And that could change a lot of things too. We just have really no way to know. We have our ideas about population shifts in North Carolina, but we really don't know what that data is going to show and what Republicans are going to do with that to draw those districts. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And I think also the thing to remember about that too is that everybody's going to be watching redistricting, I think, a lot more closely and a lot more critically than ever before. We've also seen the legislature at least uh, make some notion that this process is going to be more fair and more transparent than in years past. Uh, you know, we'll have to wait and see if that uh, ends up being true. Well, thank you so much for your time, Tyler. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. For more from our politics team, subscribe to the News and Observer at newsobserver.com slash subscribe. Follow us on Twitter at Under the Dome and NC Insider, and sign up for her weekly political newsletter, also called Under the Dome, at newsobserver.com newsletters. Thanks for listening.